Pastors here, and we are in the midst of a series on the book of Revelation and the seven letters to the seven churches. So if you have a Bible, take it to Revela- and turn it to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you back on the round table, and there are page numbers in the bulletin for uh, where we are. Uh, you want to take a Bible and turn it to there. Uh, if you're not a Christian, um, then this is a great way to understand what Christians believe and what they are all about is to actually study his foundational documents that are um, our only rule, we say, for faith and practice. Uh, As you are turning to Revelation uh, 2, I have one very important announcement to make, and that is this, that for uh, Joshua Burdett, our other pastor, it will be an art crawl. For the rest of us, it's an art walk, okay? (laughs) Just, we'll walk. So, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and particularly what the Spirit has to say to us about Jesus Christ, that we may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection, that we might reflect him and glorify him and glory in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, verse 8 says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Have you ever been to Smyrna? Have you ever been to Smyrna? Well, I want you to picture it with me. Picture a city that is uh, estimated between 75,000 and 100,000 people. That shouldn't be too hard. That's about the size of Santa Barbara. Picture a beautiful coastal city with the sea at its gate, as one ancient writer said. Picture a city that had stunning uniform architecture, that streets were laid out to perfection, that, that was so beautiful that people said that it reminded them of a flower or a crown. Picture a city, um, a city that is 
unlike all the other cities of the ancient world. Smyrna was beautiful, and the people of Smyrna knew it. In fact, on their coins, it said, most beautiful, uh, it said Smyrna, first in beauty and in greatness. And the rest of the empire agreed. All of the ancient poets and philosophers and rhetoricians would talk about the beauty of Smyrna and extol it. Have you ever been to Smyrna? An ancient travel guide, like the Rick Steves of his day, he called Smyrna the most beautiful of cities under the sun. Of course, it wasn't always like that. There was a period where it almost faded out of existence. It nearly went extinct, but it came back to life. And boy, did it ever. We read that the buildings in Smyrna had an excess of gold on them. And there was a very famous street there. I think they called it State Street. Right in the middle. And it was made out of gold. See, the people of Smyrna, they didn't have to wait to heaven to find the golden streets. It was the pride of the empire. The Romans loved it. In fact, so much that they granted it a special status, gave it special privileges, and even in AD 26, they gave it the right to build a temple to Tiberius Caesar. Have you ever been to Smyrna? I feel like I live in Smyrna. I mean... When I told people that I was interviewing for a job in Santa Barbara, uh, that people who had never been here would say, wow, suffering for Jesus, are you? <laughs> Aren't you lucky? When, when, I, uh, when I talked to some friends from California that I was going to Santa Barbara, they said, you will never in your life have ever been to a place so beautiful as that. I said, where else have you traveled? They hadn't. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the more I talk to people up and down the coast of Santa Barbara, if I, I mean, up and down the coast of California, if I'm at another place in California and people ask me where I'm from and I say Santa Barbara, I find out that this is like the destination. People are trying to get here. They want to live here. Because it's a beautiful city with beautiful architecture. I mean, a, a beautiful, rich, envied, boutique sea town. That is Smyrna. But while the city was rich, the church, we find out, was poor. The church was poor. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The church was poor because they were persecuted. Did you know that sometimes loyalty to the Lord entails economic loss? The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones ha uh, had a bright future ahead of him as a medical doctor. He ran in the most elite circles. And when he felt called to the ministry and gave that all up, to take a pulpit in a poor mining town in Wales, all his friends thought he was crazy. He lost access to elite circles. He lost, uh, he lost the future that he thought he would have. He lost societies, uh, that access to, in society that he thought that he had. And he took a 90% cut in pay. You know, sometimes 
sometimes loyal to the Lord entails economic loss. Chick-fil-A, since its founding, has not been open on a Sunday. That means that roughly one-seventh of, I know I'm good at math, of their revenue uh, they have forfeited. That's around a billion dollars in sales a year. The only time they do actually open their doors on Sunday is when people are in need, like when the Pulse nightclub shootings happened. They have done that since the beginning because their founder, Truett Cathy, believed that loyalty to the Lord meant that he needed to give his employees, all of them, a day off for worship and rest should they take it. You know, sometimes loyalty to the Lord entails economic loss. Of course, in neither of those examples that I have mentioned did it involve persecution. But for those in Smyrna, it did, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And for many Christians around the world, it does. With, over, uh, with Christians in over 600 countries right now persecuted for their faith, you better believe that in those places, loyalty to the Lord entails economic loss. And with over 75% of the world placing religious restrictions on people, you better believe that Christians in those places suffer economic loss because of loyalty to the Lord. And while we don't experience that in such, great, such a great degree, there are places in our society where we still experience it in some ways. Like the academy. I mean, the reality is, is that most places in the academy, if people know your Christian convictions, then your intellectual credibility is suspect, and therefore you are passed over for the top chairs. You are passed over for the jobs that pay the most. In 2017, uh, Tim Keller was granted the Kuiper Award from Princeton Seminary. It was worth about $10,000. But they rescinded the award because of his views on ordination, gender, and sexuality. Sometimes, sometimes, loyalty to the Lord entails economic loss. Why did it entail economic loss for the church at Smyrna? We're not quite sure, but I think from what we know of the ancient world, we can put it together. First of all, it probably had something to do with the guilds that were going on there. You see, if you were in a craft or a, uh, any kind of trade in the ancient world, then you had to belong to a guild. A guild was kind of like a union, right? And there are places in our country where if you don't belong to the union, then you can't get a job at like a school or something like that, right? It's in part and parcel of the job. And there they had these guilds. They were like unions, except there was one key difference. Those guilds all had gods, And at the guild meetings, you actually had to participate in a worship service to the gods. Something which Christians weren't willing to do. And so that would have entailed economic loss. But but it wasn't just that. It was also that the Christians, they lived in, in a town that was very patriotic. Who loved Rome. 
And Rome gave them the status of being a center for imperial worship because the number one religion of the day was imperial worship. Worship of dead Caesars and even live ones later on. And it wasn't a big deal. All you had to do was just, you know, go in once a year, get some incense, a pinch of it, burn it, and say, Caesar is Lord. What's the big deal? And yet Christians refused. Which I find quite surprising because I don't think we would have viewed it like that. I think that today, if we saw that, we would say something like, oh, well, that's not religious, that's just a political act. I think today we would say, oh, well, since my religion and my politics are separate, then I don't have to actually like, think about whether or not these two are intention. Not so, those Christians. And the stakes were very high. So you needed to get a certificate that you actually went and burned incense and said Caesar is Lord because if you didn't get a certificate, you could be killed. You would be killed. And yet these Christians, they refused. They refused to ascribe to the government what should only be ascribed to the Lord. They refused to say Caesar is Lord when Jesus is Lord. They refused to say Caesar brings peace and Caesar brings prosperity when Jesus brings peace and Jesus brings prosperity. They refused to say Caesar brings salvation. When Jesus brings salvation. They refused and they lost their lives. I mean, not at first, because there was one loophole. Did you know that? In the ancient world, there was this group of people that had such crazy views. They believed that there was only one God. And because they believed that there was only one God, and they'd been around for a while, uh, the emperor said, we don't know what to do with these people. And so we're going to give them an exception. They are exempt from worshiping Caesar and participated in the imperial cult. They were Jews. And did you know that the early Christians, do you know what they were initially? Jews. Do you know how they saw themselves? They saw themselves as Jews. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, he never calls any of the people he's writing to Christians. Did you know that? Because he views them as Jews. And even the Gentiles who come in are grafted into this Jewish community. You see, these are Jews who worship Jesus the Messiah, except well, something happened. There were Jews who didn't worship Jesus as the Messiah. A large Jewish population in Smyrna, and that Jewish population who didn't worship Jesus as the Messiah, well, they probably started distinguishing themselves from the Christians. You're not really Jews. Maybe they started telling the Romans they're not really Jews. Which is why verse 9, probably explains why verse 9 goes on. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Probably what's going on here is that the, the Jews who didn't worship Jesus started looking at the Jews who uh, did worship Jesus and the Christians and started saying to the Romans, hey, they're not Jews and they're not worshiping the emperor. So get them. Don't listen to what they say. Or maybe it would even have been a temptation for Christians. We know that it was a temptation for Christians from books like Galatians and books like Hebrews that it was a temptation for Christians to leave the church 
enter the synagogue. Because if we're in the synagogue, then we don't have to commit this blasphemous act. And yet, Jesus says that this activity is demonic. It's straight from Satan. That's why he calls it a synagogue of Satan. So, here's the church at Smyrna. They face persecution, they face poverty, and they face slander. And because of that, they are in the midst of a test. That's what verse 10 says. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now that word test is a very important word in Scripture. It appears all throughout. And in the Bible, a, a, a test is, is a place where your faith is both revealed and strengthened. And God tested Abraham. And said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, to the mountain that I will show you. Abraham was tested. Israel was tested in the wilderness. Jesus was tested in the desert. And and I think this is actually the, the best way to understand the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into the test. The trial. Testing reveals our faith and it, it strengthens our faith and it, it can at least. And, and it always presses the question upon us, where is your ultimate loyalty? Do you love God above all else? Do you trust God above all else? And the people in Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, they are being put to the test. You know, we live in a very different situation with freedom of religion, the right to assemble, freedom of speech. We live in a very different situation, and yet I feel like we can relate to this test, the test of Smyrna. You know, James says that life is a test, James chapter 1. Life is a test to see where our ultimate loyalties lie. And they are tempted. The test for them is over. Are you going to choose loyalty to Jesus or are you going to choose comfort and consumerism? Is that not something that we understand? In a culture consumed by consumerism, we know the temptation to fear that we will miss out. We know FOMO. We know that the fear that we will miss out if we follow Jesus, we will miss out on business opportunities. We know the fear that we will miss out on maybe athletic opportunities for our kids if we follow Jesus and do what he says and like worship with his people on a Sunday morning. We know the temptation that we will miss out on experiences and quality of life if we follow Jesus. And so did these Christians. And yet they refused to compromise their convictions to make some money, to have more comfort, to enjoy Smyrna. 
They refused to save their bacon instead of serving their Lord. What about us? What about us? And what does what does our, our what does our tithe check say about whether or not we want to save our bacon or serve our Lord? What does our tax return say about whether or not we want to save our bacon or serve our Lord? What do the career considerations that we are willing to make and entertain say about whether or not we are willing to we are more willing to save our bacon or serve our Lord? This is the test, and we know it. We also know the test that they have that regards fear of suffering. You see, they had to choose between loyalty to the Lord or fear of suffering. And listen, in a culture that is dominated by an atmosphere of fear, and we are, we know this test as well. Whether fear of suffering or love of Jesus will win out. And we place a high value, a high, high value in our culture on safety. And there's some of that that's good. But sometimes our high value that we place on safety, it causes us to say no. Say no to places where Jesus would call us to serve. Sometimes a high value that we place on safety causes us to say no. To say no to our children when they want to go places to serve Jesus. Sometimes the high value that we place on safety causes us to say no. To say no to interacting with certain people in certain conversations. Because they're dangerous. So we think. We know this temptation. We know this test, and in the midst of this test, Jesus says to his church, verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear because of who I am, and do not fear because of what I promise. Do not fear because of who I am. When Jesus introduces himself to the church at Smyrna, he introduces himself, verse 8, as the first and the last who died and who came to life. He introduces himself to a people who lived in a city that claimed to be the first and the greatest as the first and the last. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, I am first in beauty and I am first in greatness. He introduces himself to a people who who believe that their city was the most satisfying of all. He's saying, I am the first and the last. I am the end for which you were made. I am more satisfying than Smyrna. He says to a people who, who live in a city that almost went out into extinction and then had a comeback, I became a corpse and am alive. He says, do not fear because I am greater than Smyrna. I am more beautiful than Smyrna. I am more powerful than Smyrna. I am more satisfying than Smyrna. 
And he says that to us as well. Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything generally, and because of that, he's exactly what we need particularly. What I love about these seven letters to the seven churches is that Jesus introduces himself in a different way to each church, and all of them have to do with his characteristics, and all of them apply who he is to their specific situation. And that's the beauty of it. You see, Jesus is everything, and because he is everything, he is exactly what you need. Some of you are lonely. Jesus is a friend. Some of you are poor. Jesus is rich for you. Some of you are struggling with, with infertility. Jesus is the seed who will come into your life and bear fruit, eternal fruit. Some of you struggle with being single. Jesus is your spouse. Some of you struggle with not having a father or a mother. Jesus, Jesus describes himself as a mother hen who will gather you under his arms. He is the father who seeks after lost sheep and lost sons. Jesus is everything, and because he is everything, he is particularly what you need no matter what you are facing today. Jesus says, do not fear because of who I am. And do not fear because of what I promise. Because who I am means that I can fulfill what I promise. And let's look at the promise. And what does he promise? Well, what does he not promise? First, I want you to notice what he doesn't promise. He does not promise that this, the church in Smyrna would be kept safe and alive. Which I think is so counterintuitive to us. He does not, Jesus does not promise that you will live a right to a ripe old age. And this is going to be really hard for some of you to hear. Jesus does not promise that you are going to have a successful career. Jesus does not promise that you are going to have a satisfying career. Jesus doesn't even promise that you will have a job. He never promises that. And I'm sorry to tell you that. And I realize this is a shock to the system. Jesus does not promise any of those things. Jesus promises to a church who is faithful. Smyrna is faithful. Out of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus only, uh, Jesus rebukes everyone but two. And Smyrna is one of the ones that he doesn't rebuke. So here to a faithful church, what does Jesus promise? For a faithful and suffering church, Jesus offers further trial and suffering even to the point of death. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And for 10 days, for a distinct amount of time, you will have tribulation. And then he says, be faithful unto death. Why? Because in that day, prison wasn't the result of the punishment. Prison led up to the death sentence. But you say, wait, this isn't, this isn't right. This shouldn't happen. They're faithful. They should get from Jesus health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet that's not what Jesus promises. In fact, his promise came true. Within 60 years, Polycarp, one of the lead pastors in Smyrna, was handed over by the Jews 
to the Roman authorities, and he was killed. And he withstood the test. It's recorded that Polycarp said right at his martyrdom, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But we have a very difficult time thinking about faithfulness leading to persecution, hardship, suffering. Katie Bowler has, she works at Duke Divinity School, and for the past 10 years, she's studied something called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the most popular religion in America and the fastest growing. You may or may not have heard the prosperity gospel, but I can guarantee you this, you have seen its influence. And the way that you have seen its influence primarily is in a slogan. It's called, Blessed. Katie Browler says that blessed is shorthand for the prosperity message. And then she notes that how over the last 10 years, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. You can get a license plate that says blessed for $16.99. And very attractive aluminum, by the way. When America's Next Top Model took off his shirt, audiences saw blessed tattooed above his bulging pectorals. When Americans boast on Twitter how they are doing on Thanksgiving, the standard hashtag is blessed. It's suitable for vital images of alpine vacations and family yachting. In other words, what blessed equals is a blessed life is a life of health and wealth and prosperity. It's the American dream. Hashtag blessed, Ballarite says, I totally get it. I'm down to earth enough to know that this is crazy. But it also says, God gave this to me, adorable shrug. Don't blame me, I'm blessed. And she also notes how the thing about blessed is that blessed is ambiguous insofar as this. To be blessed could mean I receive this absolutely as an undeserving, unworthy gift of grace. And it could also mean I receive this as a word for my faithfulness. And in a place where we like to think that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, it's usually the latter that we intend. It's a very American form of Christianity with a very American view of God. And the reality is, is whether or not you've ever heard of the prosperity gospel or whether or, not you, uh, uh, whether or not you buy into its teaching or subscribe to it or confess it, it has infected us all. And not just in hashtags blessed. I think it's affected us in the way that we talk about God's faithfulness. And I'm really concerned here. Because we tend to say things like this, The scans were clean. God is faithful. Now, if what you mean by that is God is with me and he's always been with me, that's great. But I wonder, was God not faithful if the scans aren't clean? When we say, I got this job, God is faithful, I wonder, so is God not faithful if we don't get the job? See, most of the time when we talk about God being faithful, what we are saying is that God has been faithful to a promise that he never made. 
And I'm incredibly concerned about that. I'm incredibly concerned because what happens when we think he's not faithful then? See, God doesn't promise us those things. It also comes across in the way that we comfort the suffering. When we comfort the suffering, we usually rush in and we say things like, it'll get better. The best is yet to come. And what we usually mean by that is, it'll get better in this life. The best is yet to come in this life. Something else will come around. You'll get pregnant. You'll get a new job. We don't know that. And Jesus never promises that. So why do we say that? Because we believe, I mean, well, this person isn't that bad, so surely God has to bless them. This is not the promise. But what Jesus does promise is he promises to be with you in your tribulation. What Jesus does promise is he promises to be with you in your suffering. What Jesus promised is he just pr does promise to be with you in death. In chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus announces himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if we're a little bit confused on what are these lampstands, chapter 1, verse 20 says the lampstands are the churches. Jesus says, I am with the church. I am with you, Smyrna. I am with you in your tribulation. I am with you in your suffering. I am with you in your poverty. I am with you through it all. I know it. He... I know it. Jesus knows that I know your tribulation and your poverty, verse 9. I, Jesus knows your tribulation. He endured it. And Jesus knows your poverty. The Son of Man was poor and had no place to lay his head. And Jesus knows slander. He was slandered. And Jesus knows death. He has been there and he came out the other side. And he says, I will be with you. And not only will I be with you, I will bring you through the other side. I will give you the crown of life, verse 10. That's the promise. I will give you the crown of life, which is eternal life. And you will live forever with me. And not only that, you will not be hurt by the second death, verse 11. You will not be hurt by the death that really matters, the death of eternal separation and judgment from God. That you will be spared. And I can do it because I am the first and the last. Because I have died and I have rose again. I can do it and I will be with you and I will bring you through the other side. That's the promise. Kate Browler, she actually contracted cancer after she wrote her book on the prosperity gospel. And after she contracted cancer, she thought, how ironic. How ironic. Because I'm not supposed to get this because I'm faithful. And she thought about all those thoughts. And so she wrote a second book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Precious Lives I've Believed, or something like that. And in that, she, she writes, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich didn't mean 
wealth didn't have to mean wealthy, and whole did not have to mean healed. What if being the people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? And here's the good news. God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Christians, God is here. Jesus is here. And you are loved. He died and rose again on your behalf. He poured out his precious blood for your salvation. While you were his enemy, while we were weak, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that is enough. Jesus is enough. His power and his love are better and more eternally satisfying than all the health and all the wealth and all the uh, prosperity that Santa Barbara can ever offer. Later on in his life, Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked by an interviewer, did you ever regret giving up so much? Did you ever regret all that you lost? Lloyd-Jones turned and looked at him and he said, let me get this straight with you. I gave up nothing and I gained everything. May we be able to believe the same. Because Jesus is the first and the last. The one who died and rose again for us. Amen.